So tonight uh, we are going to be starting in ch uh, chapter 11, verse 20 of Hebrews, and hopefully getting all the way through, I think, verse 27. Um, all the way, whopping seven verses, right? <laughs> anyway, um, we're going to start here in verse 20. It says, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning, concerning things to come. Already I'm amazed. If I told you that, you know, to think about Isaac and his faith, where would you have gone? Yeah, he was willing to be sacrificed. Yeah. Now, as a picture of Christ, he was willingly um, offering himself, just as Christ did, you know, as a lamb was led to the, led to the slaughter, you know, he was silent. Um, but to me, that would be the greatest faith. And that isn't even brought up or mentioned. Instead, we're going to, he's going to redirect us to what faith is. And that's what I love about this, is by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So we're going to kind of open that up a little bit more, but basically blessing his kids and believing in the promises, that was the pinnacle of what he's lifting up here. So one of the things that came to my mind is how important that is and how little faith we have in blessings today, in God's promises. Now I realize we're not, you know... There's something about these blessings, but I still believe in blessings and in the, in the words that we say, that there is a power in these promises. And in essence, could you say by faith, Brian blessed his children because he believed that that was actually going to happen? Does that put that in perspective a little bit about what this faith is? This is believing the promises of God, every one of them. That's what he is being upheld by. I'm going to say most Christians today don't have that kind of faith already, and we haven't even gotten into it. So that's why I was kind of blown away even before I got started. Um, now, you remember the story where Rebecca is basically setting the stage or helping Isaac to, I don't want to say deceive, but to get the blessing from uh, his father for you know helping Jacob get it from Isaac and that's basically where we're going to go to that story right now in Genesis 27 verse 8 it says now therefore my son obey my voice according to what I command you this is his mother speaking go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats and I will make savory food from them for your father such as he loves then you shall take it to your father that he may eat it and that he may bless you before his death. One of the things that kind of st stands out is this, that you're supposed to take two choice kids and prepare it for a meal for his father. Now, I can eat a lot, but uh, Isaac could take the cake. I mean, he could like eat me under the table, apparently. Why do you need two kids, two goats, for, to feed the father. Now you might say, well, they were making the dinner for all the servants and everybody. Even so, two, we, we take a, a Passover lamb and feed a hundred people on that. Now I know that that's, you know, they're not eating just lamb, but that's a lot of meat. And I think the reason this is here is not because of the food, but it is pointing us to the two goats or the two sacrifices of the Day of Atonement. Okay, And so there's something deeper in this, these two choice goats. It continues on here and it says, and she put the skins of the kids, plural. Again, not just taking the skin of one goat and putting it on the, his hands, but both of them. That both of these goats were a covering for Jacob. And again, I think this is because it's pointing us to the Day of Atonement, to those sacrifices. Um, 
It's also very picturesque of Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve, God took an animal, probably of a goat or a lamb. Uh, I kind of tend to think probably more goat now than lamb, but to, to foreshadow that, in that those skins were then taken to cover them, to protect them. It was their covering uh, of animal skin. So, so what we're seeing here is Jacob is now covered with animal skins as well. Um, the other interesting thing is that this seems to be the determining factor for uh, Jacob's dad, Isaac, to finally say, okay, it is him. That he feels the skin and he, he just can't, there's something bothering him, you know, this whole time. And one of the things uh, John Corson was talking about that I think is good is everything that Isaac was experiencing was deceiving him except for one thing, the word that he heard. We see that he comes in and he knows something's up because he, he smells like Esau. He's got the game of Esau. He feels like Esau. All of his senses are being tricked. But he sounds like Jacob. And I think that is a good picture of just what we in the church today need to be. I'm telling you, your senses are going to be fooled. And what churches look like and sound like and all of that is going to deceive you and woo you into destruction if you don't listen to the Word. The Word of God. The Word that, you, that is heard is what's going to keep you from being deceived. The only thing. And so, rather than listening to the Word... He goes with his senses of what he can smell and feel and taste. And that's the wrong thing to do. So I think that, I mean, you could do a whole message just on that in itself. But I think that's kind of important as well. But anyway, the determining factor is him feeling this skin. And it, yep, this is Esau. Now, it amazes me that this is happening to begin with because bottom line Isaac knows he's not supposed to be blessing Jacob. He knows this. And I'm not going to do the study on Genesis here, but bottom line is when he finds out, he is going to tremble. And that word for tremble that's used there, meaning like he's scared to death. He knows he's just gone against God, tried to go around God, and he's busted. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, Esau, I spoke wrong. Thank you for catching it. I'm just getting all my, all my names confused. He knows he's not supposed to bless Esau, but that's what he's trying to do. Thank you for catching that. Yep, I just said it and it didn't even click. Because God had said, the older will serve the younger. And that's you know the opposite of what's supposed to happen. But bottom line is that God even said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, even before all of this is born. We read that in Romans. Before the children were born, God even had said that the older will serve the younger so that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. But isn't it traditionally that they were supposed to give all the blessings to the older son? So traditionally. He knew God didn't want him to do it the normal way. Yep. And this isn't something he was not used to. Because you also have Isaac and Ishmael. The firstborn there did not get the promise. And we've kind of talked about that, that this is something that goes throughout Scripture, that the, the firstborn often does not get the promise, which is, you know, pictures all the way through to Christ. But anyway, we often think, you know, Jacob is the deceiver, the, the supplanter, and all of that. Um, when we were in Israel, I kind of mentioned it briefly, but the bottom line is it seems that rather than grabbing on to the heel and being deceptive, it was a lot of the Jews say he was protecting his head, not grabbing the heel. And this all has to do when Jacob goes and is, he's on his way fleeing after this. He flees from Esau. And he stops at Bethel, and he lays his head on a rock. That, work, that word for rock there, it's stone, um, which in Hebrew is, um, in Hebrew, 
it's uh, Bet Avon, which, or not Bet, but uh, just Avon. And the way it is there, and the Jews all record it this way, is it is the, the foundation stone, Hashatia or something like that. Um, that foundation stone is where the Jews believe that the temple was built, where I think even God maybe created the world or something like that. But today, if you go to Jerusalem and you go into the Dome of the Rock, inside of the Dome of the Rock, there's a, a stone, and it's called the, the Avon Hashatia, the Stone of Foundation. And it is very special even to this day. And so they say that that's where the temple then was built, was on that stone that Jacob had his head on. Now, I don't see how that can happen because Bethel and Jerusalem are apart. But this is how the Jews see it. I don't know if it was a miraculous thing or if it's just symbolism or what, but that's just how they see it. And so what they see is that when Jacob lays his head on that stone, there, in the Hebrew, it also says heads, not head. So Jacob literally lays his heads on the stone. And that's why they start saying, well, there's something deeper here. And what they see is that this stone was going to be the protector of all the heads that would come out of Jacob, all 12 tribes. So that's just a nutshell version of it. But because of that heads being protected, they take and they say that when he was grabbing the heel, which the scriptures say that it was more of a protecting and a defensive thing, not an offensive thing. So, yeah. And like I said, I could do a whole message just on that, but that's the quick kind of summary of it. Um. It continues here in verse 26. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him. And he smelled the smell of his clothing and blessed him and said, Surely the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. So again, he feels him first. Then he smells him. His senses are all failing him, as we were talking about before. Verse 28, therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. So this right here is what the, the faith chapter of Hebrews 11 is talking about. By faith, Abraham said the, or Isaac said these things. Okay, now there's three aspects to this blessing. One, abundant provisions, that they would have the dew of heaven. You know what I find interesting? If you think of Jews today, outside of Bible study, what do you think of? Banks. What? Banks. Banks, affluence basically. Lawyers. Lawyers, rich, educated. As a group of people, they are very educated, highly educated, um, rich. Most of them are Nobel Prizes. Go see how many Nobel Prizes have been done by Jews. It's amazing. Some of the, the greatest inventions have come out of Israel. They are leading in so many areas. So it's just interesting that this prophecy, this blessing, has come about. Not only that, but it says, and nations will bow down to you. Great honor. Now, doesn't mean that they're not hated. They've always been hated, but let me tell you, the world bows down to Israel today. The United Nations, you know, they won't even let them have one of the rotating seats because they're hated so much. But nonetheless, what goes on in Israel, it's kind of like the thermostat for the world. What the temperature is in Israel is going to determine what the temperature is around the world. To this day, that's the way it is. And so it's, it's pretty significant, the, the power that that little country has today in their influence. Third thing, go ahead. I, just want to, I had looked this up last week, so I wanted to point out. Jews in the United States are the top five out of the top ten of the most wealthiest Americans, 30 of the top 100, 
and they are Jews worldwide make up 19% of the world's wealthiest people. Wow. Now, there's, there's a blessing, God's hand of blessing on them. There's no question uh, that this came true. By faith, Abra, or Isaac, I'm going to do it again. By faith, Isaac did this. He did, but it didn't matter what he thought. What mattered was the word that was said. And I think that that's kind of important when we realize about our prayers and the words we say. You might not think that you're saying a curse or you know, a blessing, yet at the same time, those words count. I think that's why Yeshua said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Because words are powerful. They're not empty like we tend to think they are at times. It wasn't in his heart where the power came. It was in the word of blessing. The third and final thing is blessings and curses. You know, those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse them will be cursed. And that's where we are. I mean, you do not go against Israel. If you do, you will lose. might take a few years, but you're going to lose. Look throughout all of history. That has been the case. Well, I hope we don't find out, but uh, I can tell you this, if we do go against Israel, yeah, that's definitely a handwriting on the wall there. Now, we've talked about before, but just to kind of put it in here for those listening, that when I talk about blessing Israel too, the best thing you can do is not get them to their homeland or whatever, but to pray for them and give them the gospel of Yeshua. That's the true blessing for the Jew, not getting them to Israel. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying that they would come to know their Messiah. That's what the New Testament talks about. So, But anyway, I just find it interesting. Here is this blessing, and throughout the last 3,000 years or better, it has come true. Still, God is being faithful to his promise. Anyway, uh, verse uh, 30, it goes on and it says, Now it happened as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, and Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also had made savory food and brought it to his father and said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that your soul may bless me. <clears throat> One thing that's interesting here, too, is that uh, he apparently loved wild game, but they're not getting wild game. So apparently he didn't love it that much. He couldn't tell the difference. Okay, it was something about his, yeah, yeah. I think it was something, a, a connection with his son, that whatever his son Esau did was just, you know, that much better kind of thing. But anyway, um, if you lay this story Against the parable of the ten virgins, there's also just a lot of similarities here. Uh, almost a perfect match where you have, you know, five wise and five foolish. Kind of a half and half type of thing. You have the foolish ones that don't have their oil ready and the wise ones who are ready at any moment waiting to, uh, you know, receive the bridegroom when he comes uh, to, to basically swoop in at the right time. And then after that, the door is shut and it's too late. Well, this is what we see with Esau and Jacob. One is wise, one is foolish, one swooping in when, he, when the, the blessing is there, and the other one, no matter how much he's going to cry about it, it's too late. The door is shut. The blessing has been given, and you're not going to be able to have any more. Verse 32, And his, his father Isaac said to him, who are you? So he said, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled exceedingly and said, Who? Where is the one who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate all of it before you came, and I have blessed him, and indeed he shall be blessed. So even he knew his words were powerful. Um, I also find it interesting that he doesn't say, Who is this? Well, it's Esau. He says, it's Esau, your firstborn. He adds that title in there. Yeah, especially for the moment, yeah. So Isaac knew when he spoke that he could not reverse what had been said. I find that 
kind of like what you were saying is once the word is spoken, I mean, it, it is, it's there. We see in the Old Testament all the time that if a woman would take a vow, it stood. Unless it, immediately the husband said, no, you can't do that. But if the husband said, okay, that vow stood. Once a vow was made, there was no taking it back. Which, by the way, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, uh, when you read the book of Esther, what the king says goes, it cannot be repealed. That's another picture of God, too. When it's written, it is written. God follows his own rules, you might say. He's not willy-nilly about it, and then one day feels a little different, which we should be grateful for because that means that he is the same yesterday, today, and always. I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you can count on him. So it is important to have that, that God's word does not change. Verse 34, when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. Like I said, there that Hebrew word basically tells us Isaac knew he screwed up and that he was going against God. He said to his father, bless me also, O my father. No, I'm sorry, this was Esau's one. Bless me also, O my father. But he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright, and now look, he's taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Now a lot of people will look at this, and I think we throw Jacob under the bus a lot. This is one of them. He's the deceiver. He's the supplanter. All of this kind of thing. He wasn't. Esau, Esau sold his birthright. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. This is Esau's perspective, not God's. But somehow today, typically most Christians, we have attached to Jacob Esau's view of Jacob. Jacob was a man of God. He was not the deceiver. He didn't even want to do this. It was his mother who said, do it. But what, what, what if? Don't worry, I'll take the blame. You go do what your mother is telling you to do. And so Jacob, we even see that you know, he was a mama's boy. And it says, and this is a whole another hour message that I'm not going to get into too much, but bottom line is we see that Esau was a man of the field and then Jacob was basically, he stayed in the tents. And, and a lot of people say, well, he's a mama's boy. And, and then over here, Esau, he's kind of a daddy's boy, manly. Because of this, we see the homosexual community sometimes even saying that Jacob was gay. I kid you not. Okay, because he was that mama's boy, didn't like to go do manly things. Wrong. Jacob was a manly man. He, we see him doing manly things. What that, in Hebrew, in the, the Jewish language, how the Jews even understand this, if you are a man of the tents, you are a man of God. Because it's in the tents, like Shem was a man of the tents. And it's there that you would go and learn about God. Study the word. And so when it talks about him, it's not being a mama's boy as much as it is showing that he loved God and that he was one who studied and wanted to learn of God. So don't make Jacob this little weasel that Esau puts him to be. That's not him at all. He was one who chased after God, which also explains why he gets the blessing, why God wanted him to have this. Not because he had a tender, you know, feminine heart. Not at all. Um... Like you said, he, Esau sold his birthright for, you know, a bowl of stew. And that's far from being, you know, taking it away. It was also rightfully Jacob's because God had promised and said it was to go to him. So he can't take something that God already had given him. So, like I said, this is Esau's perspective. Um... Also, it seems to make it like two separate things. He took my birthright, and now he's taking the blessing? These things go hand in hand. Okay, they're not independent of one another. But again, this is Esau's perspective. But it's all one and the same. 
So in essence, just like I said, the, the parable of the ten virgins, when they come, they cry out and they're saying, you know, open the door, can't, you know, we want in, but it's too late. That's what Esau is doing here. But it's too late. The blessing is gone. Verse 37 says, And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Indeed, I have made him your master and all his brethren. I have given to him as servants. With grain and wine I have sustained him. What shall I do now for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Bless me, me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. So, I remember reading that when I was younger and just kind of feeling really bad for Esau. But again, this is a picture of, I think, the Lord's return coming back when he's going to hand out that blessing. And people are going to say, Lord, Lord, we performed miracles in your name. We cast out demons. And he says, away from me, you worker of iniquity. I know not who you are. I think that's the, the picture we see. Verse 39, Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live. You shall serve your brother, and it shall come to pass when you become restless that you shall break his yoke from your neck. It's interesting, in Revelation 13 it says those who uh, live by the sword will die by the sword. And here he says, by your sword you shall live. I don't know if that's a prophetic thing, pointing to that. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Because, what's that? We don't, but I think this is more kind of a like the whole nation. Uh, and we know that Esau becomes the Edomites later. And the Edomites become known as what are called Idumeans. And one of the Herods of Scripture was an Idumean, uh, the one that was killing all the babies. He was an Idumean, so he was a descendant of Esau. Uh, if you read the whole book of Obadiah, the whole book of Obadiah is about uh, the, the Edomites being destroyed, the judgment from God coming upon them. So um, <clears throat> how could he break the yoke off of his neck, though? Okay, he's going to say, you're going to have a yoke, but you're going to break the yoke of your older brother, the one you're supposed to serve. You're not going to always serve. How can that be? Well, it's kind of interesting what the Targum says here. Now, again, what is the Targum? It is the Aramaic translation of the Bible, kind of more like a paraphrase of it. So it is scripture, but it's the Aramaic translation and paraphrase of it. Here's what the Targum says on this verse. Upon thy sword shalt thou depend, entering at every place, yet thou shalt be supple and credulous and be in subjection to thy brother. But it will be that when his sons become evil and fall from keeping the commandments of the law, thou shalt break his yoke of servitude off from off your neck. So Jacob is getting this blessing, you're in charge. But there was a little bit of a stipulation with it. If Jacob fell away from God, then that blessing kind of falls with it. And this is how Esau was able to break off the yoke is because Jacob become, had become disobedient. Now, I still think that promise stands you know, especially all the way to the end of time, but bottom line is it's interesting that that's the case. It's the same for us in the church today, folks. As Christians, you just can't count on the fact that, hey, I'm a Christian and I go to church on Sunday. If you're walking in disobedience to God, you don't have the blessing. So, again, I'm not preaching a, a works righteous attitude here. I'm saying this, that it's not cheap grace either. Obedience does matter, and it mattered in the case here of Jacob. Here's where this is fulfilled. 2 Kings 8.20, it says, In his days, uh, this is the time of Jehoram, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over themselves. 
Then in verse 22, Thus Edom had been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day, and Libna revolted at that time. So the prophecy that Isaac had spoken all these years earlier, right here was fulfilled in 2 Kings chapter 8. Anyway, verse 21, back in our text here of Hebrews 11, it says, By faith then, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. So we've gone from Isaac, now we're getting to Jacob, and it's saying almost the exact same thing. Okay, Jacob's faith was in the blessing again. So we're seeing a theme. Our faith should be believing in the promises. That's what our faith stands on. That's the very foundation of it all. Um, how, how is Isaac only able to bless one son and Jacob can bless all of his grandsons? Well, Isaac didn't bless only one son. He gave Esau a blessing. He said, you're going to be rich. You're going to have all kinds of things, but you're going to serve your brother. So it's the same here. Jacob is going to bless all of his sons, but the one gets the, the double portion the big blessing, the, the, the blessing of the firstborn. And so in this case, Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph as the firstborn, not the actual firstborn. So another example of the firstborn not being first. Um, now we remember here Manasseh is one of Joseph's children. Joseph does not receive the blessing himself. His two children, Manasseh and Ephraim, do. And this is extremely important for you to understand this in Scripture because this is going to help you understand the context of the Bible in so many different ways. Um, the, main, the firstborn blessing, we receive Manasseh and Ephraim. All 12 tribes of Israel are going to almost really be summed up in that. The tribes of Ephraim are going to be known as the northern tribes and become known. Sometimes all 10 tribes that split off from Judah and Benjamin, all of those 10 tribes many times in Scripture will be called the tribes of Ephraim or the tribes of Israel. The tribe of Judah are the two so Ephraim becomes known as these ten tribes. What happens to those ten tribes? After Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam is kind of stupid, and ten tribes go one way and two stay with him. Those ten become known as Ephraim. Those ten tribes are then later scattered by the Assyrians around 722 BC, scattered all over the place, and lost. They become known as what is still to this very day called the lost tribes of Israel. So, when Jesus comes, who does he say he comes for? I have come only for the lost tribes of Israel. Why that is so important is because there are people out there who are going to tell you that because you are a believer in Yeshua today, you are probably of one of those tribes of Israel. Now, while I believe there's truth in that, I am not, I don't let that pendulum swing all the way here to that side because of this. What do you do with people like Rahab? She was not of any of those 12 tribes, but yet she is even in the great faith chapter. What do you do with Ruth? So to be a believer in Yeshua does not mean that you have to be of those 12 tribes. Now, with that said, I do believe that there is a generality that is pictured here. That when those 10 tribes were scattered out, they were assimilated into the culture of the world. As a matter of fact, when Jesus comes, you have the Samaritans. And those Samaritans are one of those lost tribes. But what happened is they become so corrupt that it wasn't biblical. They added all these extra things 
to the Bible. Remember when Jesus goes to the woman at the well and she says, you Jews worship in Jerusalem, but we worship here on Mount Gerizim. And he says, when the Messiah comes, she said, when the Messiah comes, he's going to kind of clear it up. And Jesus says, I tell you, woman, that a time is coming when men will not worship on this mountain or there, but they will worship in spirit and truth. These are the worshipers that God desires. That woman is one of these. Now, remember, a Jew, as far as they were concerned, a Samaritan was as a Gentile as they could get. They, they were unclean, awful, because their theology was so screwed up. Kind of like what they look at you guys. <laughs> they see your theology as being so screwed up because, well, you don't obey God's commands. You know, you do Christmas and Easter, pagan holidays. You let those names fly off of your lips when God says you're not supposed to do that. You're teaching that your Messiah said it's okay to break the law. So you're the modern-day Samaritans. The culture has, you know, changed you to the point to where it's no longer biblical theology, it's church theology. Now, that might kind of be a little radical for some people, but that's the truth. And so what happens is when Jesus says, I have come for the lost sheep of Israel... What he's talking about, and I firmly believe this, he's going after the 12 tribes. Because, well, all 12, but the lost 10. He came for the, those 10, but he's also there for the other two. But bottom line is, he's saying that if you go look at, do a word search in your concordance for gather, scatter and gather in Scripture, I'll bet there's no less than 60 verses that are going to tell you prophetically that God in the end times is going to bring them together. He's going to take the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Manasseh and he's going to put them together in his hand and they become one stick. What's that mean? Well, if you don't understand Ephraim means those ten tribes, Manasseh, then you don't understand what he's saying is all twelve tribes are supposed to come back together. And I'm telling you the scriptures are filled with these prophecies that that's what's supposed to happen. And that's what Jesus said. I have only come for the lost sheep of Israel. Now, does that mean that there can't be Rahabs and Ruths that say, hey, I want a part of that too? No, absolutely. But I do believe that there are there is a calling. And this blessing that Jacob is going to give here, you're going to see, is even prophetic that this was going to happen. All right, let me move on and I'll explain it. Verse 12 of chapter 48, when Jacob is now giving the blessing, he says, so Joseph brought them, his sons, from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth and Joseph took them both, Ephraim at his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand. Why? Because Manasseh is the older one. He's supposed to get the bigger blessing. And then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So he crosses his arms. It goes on and it says, Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head, and put it on Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my son, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. I don't know if he thought, you know, his dad's getting senile or he can't see. Or... But verse 19 says, But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So here we see again, the second becomes first. We also see then in this blessing, he says that Ephraim is going to become a multitude of nations. The Hebrew word there for nations is goyim. That is the word for Gentiles. The very prophecy of Scripture here in Genesis 49.18 uh, says this, or 48.19 says that Ephraim would become Gentiles. Years later, when Rehoboam splits, okay, you got ten tribes that go, then the Assyrians come, and those ten tribes become Gentiles. So when Jesus came, 
And he says, I have only come for the lost sheep of Israel. You can't just put Jew in your head the way you're thinking of it. He's saying, I've come for the Gentiles, the lost, my lost ones, who have been sucked into the culture, contaminated. I'm going to bring them back. And I think that's partly why we see this Zechariah 8 verse that we've talked about before, that in the end times, ten Gentiles are going to take and grab hold of the hem of one Jew and say, take us with you. Because what he's saying is, He's going to call the Gentiles back to understand Scripture the way they have been, the way they're supposed to understand it. My words are going to follow. They're going to love it. And I think that picture of the hem of one Jew, why does it say one Jew? I think it's talking about Yeshua. And the hem that he's talking about, it's the tzitzit, the kanaf. And what's that tzitzit that they're grabbing onto? That is a picture of the Ten Commandments of God. Not just my opinion, that's what Scripture says. That's why you were to put the tzitzit on your, hand, on your robe, was because it was to remind you of the commandments of God. And so now, you've got ten Gentiles grabbing on to the commandments of God, saying, take us with you. And this is what I'm seeing happening in the church, folks. I'm seeing a lot of people, their eyes are being opened, and saying, God's word, we have strayed so far from it. We have, we have made rules of our own. We've, we've twisted the scriptures to make it fit our culture, our own ideas, all of that. So, very important verse. But again, this is the blessing that Jacob gives. Verse 20, so he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will bless by you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. At Passover, at the Seder meal, you'll note that there's a time to bless your children. And this is one of the blessings that they say to their kids. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Because it's in the scripture, this is what they're doing. So, um, just a little side note, by the way, here. In Hebrews, they're, they're, they're using the Septuagint. Uh, I've mentioned that before. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the Septuagint, one out of every two times the scriptures are quoted in the New Testament, it's coming from the Septuagint. Um, here's Hebrews 11.21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top, top of his staff. That's what it says in Hebrews. How do I know he's quoting the Septuagint? Here's what the Septuagint says. He swore to him, and Israel did obeisance upon the top of his staff. Well, let me show you what the, the um, Hebrew text says. It's the difference of, of just basically one letter, matah and matay. The Hebrew text of um, Genesis has the word bed, that he leaned on the bed, not his staff. So I didn't put it up here. I thought I did. but <coughs> So anyway... Verse 20, um, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. Keep in mind this is on his deathbed. He's close to dying. Verse 21, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Oh, maybe I have here then. Verse 22 continues, By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now what's interesting about this to me is that the author here is showing that these men had faith all the way to the end. When he's dying, this is the same thing when Isaac is blessing Jacob. It's when he was getting old, he could hardly see. It's at the end of their life. I think it's pointing that out for a number of reasons. One, yes, that's when you give the blessing. But two, it means they persevered. They did not grow weary. They did not grow tired. They did not give up, but they persevered to the end. And that is what we are to do. And even though they never saw that promise fully in their life, they still <coughs> believed it. And I think that that's important for us, to, even in this election that we see going on. You have faith to the end. You don't give up. You don't start pouting. You don't start whining. You just get, keep getting down on your knees. Everything that you're seeing here, faith is connected to the promise. Because Joseph, when he was dying, had his bones 
carried with him. I don't remember who I was after talking with. Dying. Oh, after he died. Thank you. See? Yeah, when Joseph was alive, his bones went with him everywhere. Yeah, I, I brought mine here. <laughs> oh, I know what it was. I on my Zoom Bible study on Wednesday, um, somebody was asking about cremation. Was it okay to be cremated? And I said, I, I think you have that right. I will not be cremated. And because of... Like you have a say. I have a say. Um, there's going to be a blessing clause in my blessing. Because if you're cremated, first of all, we only see in the Old Testament that it's the ungodly that are burned. Now, I'm... Tight. I mean, if you guys know me, I, I am tight with my money. I mean, I, I'm a McDonald's kind of guy. If I'm gone for three weeks by myself, I'll spend $15 on food in three weeks, okay? When my family goes, I spend that on one meal. That's right. For everybody. But bottom line is, I am tight. So if anybody would want to be cremated, it would be me. But I think there's a spiritual thing here that it's a picture of the flames of hell. Only the ungodly kings were burned. Second thing is, is we even see here the faith that Joseph had. It's faith that there will be a bodily resurrection. Now, I believe that if I'm in a plane crash and I'm burned, you know, to bits and cremated, you know, because of that, that God still has every power and will be able to take all that dust, just like we see in Ezekiel 37, and, and have everything come together. So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying this. Symbolically... I don't want to be because even what we're reading here, that there is a, a message of faith in Joseph saying, carry my bones with you. Could God raise them up and bring them? Yes. And he will do that for many. So I'm not saying cremation is bad. It is not. This is just me and why I would prefer it. Because of that reason, and that's what's being highlighted here with Joseph, having his bones carried with is because it is his faith in the promise of a bodily resurrection. Even Job said that in that he would see God with his eyes. Okay, that he is going to see him in that in his body. I don't remember how Job put it. But that's what's being illustrated here is that bring my bones with because there's faith in a promise. Um, verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instruction concerning his bones. What's interesting here then is Genesis 50, verse 24. It says, Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. He had faith in that promise. Surely, I have no doubt that that's what's going to happen. Just to kind of back some of this up, here's some apocryphal books that just kind of line up with what Scripture says. Uh, Sirach 49 says, Nor was anyone ever born like Joseph, even the bones were cared for. Psalm 105, 17 says, He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. And I'm going to kind of start wrapping up on this part here, that the word of the Lord tested him. That just jumps out at me because Joseph never cursed God, never abandoned God, that we, can, that we read about at all. Even after he was put in prison, you know, he, all of these things happen. He's sold by his brothers. Yeah, he was crying out and all of this, and we don't know maybe what's not recorded, but what's recorded is that he never lost faith in God through all those trials and tribulations. And it's easy for us to follow God when things are going well. But as soon as cancer hits, as soon as our loved ones are dying, as soon as we lose our job, as soon as president, uh, a new president comes in like Biden, okay, if that would ever happen, okay, then we question, where is God? And... I just think, is God testing you? I'll tell you what, in my life, I can almost say just about every time, God takes me 
It's like, I got this, I got this, I got this, this is awful, I got this, this is terrible, I got this, and then finally I break. And then God says, all right, I got this, now I'll give it to you. I, I don't know if you guys have experienced that, but that seems to be the way it is with me. I'm doing so well, and then finally I lose it, and God steps in and says, well, okay, B minus. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I want to be a Joseph, or just like Noah was talking about. These people, these men of faith that we're reading about, they are up here. This is incredible stuff that they did. These people lived through things that I can only imagine. Okay, I haven't experienced even an iota of what Joseph did, being thrown into prison and into a pit by my own brothers, being hated by my brothers, sold as a slave, then thrown in prison because of nothing. I mean, I did nothing wrong, and yet he continues to hold the faith. So I, th I think that that's when it counts, is when we are going through the toughest time in our life and we can still hold on to those promises of God. That's when it counts. You know, if you look at Jacob's life, you look at Isaac's life, it does not sound fun to me. It kind of sounds like a long, drawn-out, miserable life. They never were home. They were wanderers. Look at the problems. You read the book of Genesis, and it's one tragedy problem after another. You've got Dinah being raped. You've got, you know, one of your sons sleeping with your concubine. You've got all kinds of things going on, one right after the other, of what I would say are pretty big problems. Famines that you have to flee from. Pharaoh taking your, your wife. What, whatever the case might be. Just one thing after another, and yet they never lost faith. And you go, wow, that's incredible. When God tests you, he's not going to say, all right, 30 push-ups. You know, can you handle running out of gas on the freeway? I think it's going to be greater than that. Those are some really minor tests. And I would like to say that as what Hebrews 11 is preparing us for, kind of what we talked about the week before last, is that there could be some trials coming ahead. And we have to have it in our minds now that by faith I'm going to believe the promises of God. That's how you get through. By believing the promises, not by the situation you're in at that moment. Because even the Israelites, he does, he does the exact same thing. He takes them to the, the Red Sea and then he has them trapped. It's like they were doing so well. We trust you, God. We trust you, God. We trust you, God. Okay, now we're in trouble. And now they cry out. That's what he's going to do. He's going to take you to a point where you are trapped. And you think there is no way out. And that's when he's going to move. So remember that when you're in that trapped moment. Okay? Um, Deuteronomy 8.2 says, And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you keep his commandments or not. Guys, do you, do you believe that today, you know, God's word is the same yesterday, today, and always? Do you think that he might be testing you today to see whether you will keep his commandments or not? I don't think the test is only running out of gas on the freeway or getting cancer and dying a painful, slow death. That's not the only test God gives us. Scripturally, one of the tests he gives us is his word. Will you obey it? This is what he did. Remember, in Exodus, he delivers them out of Egypt. He has the Passover lamb, a picture of Christ. He redeemed them, and then he tested them in the wilderness. I think that's where we're at. We are in our 40-year wilderness wandering right now, going through our daily life. He has redeemed us on the cross, and now he says, All right, I'm going to test you. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked 
and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So don't think that because you're being tested that this is a bad thing or that God hates you. No, you're on the right side. God tests the righteous. It's the wicked that he hates. And you wonder why the wicked seem to have it all together? Okay. Um, God hates nothing. God hates nothing, yeah. So says the liberal compromising church. Hebrews 11:23. by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. I also find it interesting, it doesn't talk about, first, anyway, Moses' faith. It's his parents' faith. See that? That they were not afraid of the king's command. It was his parents that hit him. So it's really his parents being talked about here. Um, let me show you what Josephus says here about this happening. After that time, Amron, Amram, which is Moses' uh, dad, fearing he should be discovered and by falling under the king's displeasure, both he and his child should perish so he should make the promise of God of none effect. God had promised, and so he's like, I'm going to, I trust God. He determined rather to trust the safety and care of the child to God than to depend on his own concealment of him, which he looked upon as a thing uncertain, and whereby both the child, so privately to be nourished, and himself should be in imminent danger. But he believed that God would some way for certain procure the safety of the child in order to secure the truth of his own predictions. That's the kind of faith we need to have with our children. That's the kind of faith we need to have if things in this world fall apart. Faith in the promises of God. Not the worst case scenarios your brain can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> okay, verse 24. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So basically the writer is recognizing that Moses had a choice to make here. He could either keep his status, his comfort, his pleasure, or gain one of affliction. Can I say that you guys have that same choice? I think all of us are in that. You can choose the pleasures of this world right now in Egypt, spiritual Egypt, or you can choose to follow God, which he promises is going to be one that's a hard road, but one with blessings that are out of this world. I think we all have a Moses moment here. I've harped on that with my kids, and today Noah and I were praying, and just to hear him pray what I've harped on for years, just like, oh, melts your heart. I have been saying, and I say it all the time, that we're not here to have fun. I know, I sound like a great dad. But they can vouch for it. But you're not wrong. That is not why God put us here on this earth. Now, I'm not saying you can't have fun, but... You get done with one thing and they're already planning the next fun thing. That their mind is constantly focused on the next fun thing to do in life. That is not why you're here on earth. God did not put you here for that. He put you here to go and share the gospel and to keep people from going to hell. For you to have time to, to, to grow in Him. That's why you're here. And if all you can think about is the next fun thing to do, you need to have your Moses moment. Anyway. Is that, is that hashtag? Hashtag Moses I still don't understand hashtags, so I don't know. <laughs> Psalm 73 verse 1 says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked... For there are no pangs in their death, their strength is firm, they're not in trouble as the other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace, violence covers them like a garment, their eyes bulge with abundance, they have more than heart than their heart could wish. David is saying, 
I almost slipped because I looked at what the world has. I almost wanted to keep up with the Joneses. They have boats and, and, and timeshares and whatever. Whatever your heart desires. They have it all. They seem to be happy. They've got this big mansion and, and all this money. They get to eat out as much as they want. And he says, I almost desired that. Okay, I think that's important. Yep, yeah, he's out. <laughs> this is what the flesh yearns for. The world is their oyster, it seems. But then he goes on, it continues, it says, Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Verse 15, if I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. A guy said, uh, Paul Washer actually, somebody asked him why does God allow this ungodly person to be so rich and whatever? I know people like that. I'm sure you do too. His answer was this. For the same reason a farmer fattens up the pig for the slaughter. I like that. Well, I like that saying. You know what I mean. This is exactly what this is saying. Until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I realized what their end is. Their end is eternal damnation in hell. Their reward, they're getting it now here on earth. But they're going to have eternal punishment. We need to realize next time you find yourself jealous of what others have, remember this. Don't let your foot slip. Be thankful for what God has given you and know we're not here for that. So, we walk by sight if this is what we are chasing after in this world. That's walking by sight. But the Bible says we are to walk by faith, which means we don't worry about the riches, we don't worry about the toys, we don't worry about what others have. Psalm 73, verse 18 continues, Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation. As in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. See, he recognized what his end was and that by his counsel, by the word of God, and that's where we get counsel, that you're going to have that understanding. So the pleasures of this world are only temporary. And it's like Ray Comfort talks about. You know, people say, oh, sin is, you know, that's a terrible thing. No, sin is fun, period. But it is for a moment. It is temporary. And then you will have an eternity of damnation. So um, it is ungodly for us to keep desiring and seeking after and chasing after the Egyptian worldly life. We need to have our Moses moment. Malachi 3.13, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You've said it's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinances, kept his commands, and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts, that we've, you know, not kept up with the Joneses, not had everything else that everybody else has. So now we call the proud blessed, for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Malachi is speaking of those who have these thoughts as speaking harsh words against God. Remember that next time you have those thoughts. Those are harsh things, harsh words against God. Last slide, verse 24 here, finishing out. By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction 
with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So we looked at some of this before, but again I want you to see notice that he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater. When was this written? Well, obviously it's Hebrews, but nonetheless, he's talking about Moses. Moses, he esteemed the reproach of Christ, the Messiah. He knew, it seems, that the Messiah would be the one who would be bruised and so on. Way back then, unless, of course, it's just talking about the writer of Hebrews is saying, you know, Moses didn't know this was the reproach of Christ, but we know it's a reproach of Christ. But I tend to think, just because of the way Scripture is, Moses knew that the Messiah would suffer. He looked to the reward. In other words, he looked to the promises. And like I said, our current life that you guys are in right now is a test. It's a test just like Moses had. We are in our desert wandering, and only you can answer the question of where are you in this test. But I think that we daily need to have our Moses moment and remember that we're not here for the pleasures of sin or even the passing pleasures of this world that are not sinful. You can, we're going to have those. God is good. I, I mean, I have pleasures all the time. But if that's where we're thinking about all the time, you're missing the boat and you need your Moses moment.